This is the Canna Curio Podcast by Cannabis Media, your source for cannabis and hemp license updates directly from the data vault. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cannabis Media newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay informed of future episodes and data releases. Welcome back to the Canna Curio Podcast. We're your hosts, Amanda Guerrero and Ed Keating. On today's show, we're joined by Deborah Borchart of Green Market Report. Deborah's been a longtime friend of the cannabis media family, and we're so excited to have her on the show today. But as always, before we check in with Deborah, let's see what Ed's learned this week from the Data Vault. Ed? Well, the team's been working a lot on securing hemp data, sort of that season we've been talking about where the licenses are getting issued nationwide in the spring and people want to get seed in the ground. So last week we got responses back from Oklahoma, West Virginia, Washington, Hawaii, North Dakota, a lot of states. Um, But what's interesting is from a few states, uh, when we made these requests, we got denied because they only want to make data available for residents only. And this happened in both Virginia and Tennessee. Is this a common occurrence, Ed? And how difficult is it to overcome this? Uh, It's pretty uncommon, um, but there are ways to navigate around it. In some cases, like in Virginia, we have somebody on the cannabis team who's in Virginia, so she can submit it on uh, our behalf. And in the case of Tennessee, there are services that can be used that can help you do things like this to you know, submit these kind of requests. So it's definitely a, uh, a challenge, but it does happen. In some cases, though, with hemp uh, and with other government records, the states are you know, asking how the data is going to be used that we get, which uh, is a little bit annoying because that's really not a Freedom of Information Act uh, anymore or, or freedom. So... Um, the other part, though, is uh, we've been working uh, in Connecticut, uh, our home state, and I just did a blog post recently on Connecticut hemp licenses. And the unique thing here is there are two regulators that manage the licenses, and we're seeing that more and more in the hemp world where, unlike cannabis, where states often create this big monolithic regulator, on the hemp side, I think they realize there's no need to do that. Let's take advantage of the regulators we already have. So in Connecticut, it's both the Department of Agriculture uh, on the farming side and the Department of Consumer Protection for essentially what are edibles. So we think that's uh, you know a, a pretty interesting development, and we think we're going to perhaps see more of it uh, as we look across the rest of the country. Yeah, that seems like it would make the the most sense. But, um, you know, we've seen a lot of this kind of vertical integration within, you know, the cannabis industry. Do you think this is going to become more of a, of a common uh, practice for hemp as well? Well, it's, it's a great point. Great. Um, it may be in that certain states it's easy for or somebody who's getting a hemp license to grow to say, yeah, I'll, I'll be a processor too. And they just essentially check a box and they have to write maybe a, a slightly bigger check for $15 or something like that. But in other cases, it can be more complex. You know, Colorado has a lot of different licenses. Florida just launched their hemp program, and it seems to be really broad in terms of the things they're trying to license. So, yeah, I, I think we may see more of that. And I think 2020 will be telling as a lot of states try and figure out, you know, what is their licensing scheme going to be? And, uh, you know, they'll see what kind of reception they get from the license holders. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing what you and the team come uh, find in the coming weeks. So thank you again for the update, Ed. When we come back, we'll be joined by Deborah Borchart of Green Market Report. 
Stay tuned. Green Market Report is cultivating the industry's financial news into one source. Readers have access to free updates on all cannabis legislation and industry reports. Plus, it's where you'll find Marijuana Money, the longest-running weekly video segment on cannabis business news. Go to www.greenmarketreport.com and subscribe to the weekly newsletter today. Welcome back, everybody. As I mentioned earlier, we're joined by the one and only Deborah Borchart of Green Market Report. She's the co-founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief, and a longtime friend of the cannabis media team. Welcome, Deborah. Thanks for having me. It's, we're so excited to, to have you on the show. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, you know, you've got a few illustrious titles here, you know, but we'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, how long have you been in the industry? I've been covering cannabis for about the last seven years. Before I became a reporter, I worked on Wall Street. I was at Bear Stearns for 15 years. And then I left and got my master's degree in business and economic reporting from NYU. And from there, I started working at thestreet.com with Jim Cramer. And then I began freelancing. And I started Green Market Report about three years ago this summer. Oh, wow. And I guess for myself, why did you decide to start Green Market Report and get into the cannabis space? I was writing about cannabis at thestreet.com. And, and when you look back at when I first started covering cannabis, which was around 2013, it was before Colorado had legalized adult use. Uh, there were a lot of sketchy pot stocks, as we like to call them, back then. And uh, just a lot of shareholder fraud in the penny stock world with cannabis. But the problem was because these were tiny stocks and small, insignificant companies, they really weren't getting covered anywhere. And a lot of the mainstream media back then looked at cannabis as a joke. Um, so there wasn't any kind of serious coverage. And so I started freelancing because I just really loved the industry. I thought it was really fascinating um, from a financial reporter standpoint of view. And as I was freelancing um, at Forbes and, and other places, um, the, those again, those mainstream media outlets really just wanted to stay at the top level of the reporting. They didn't want to get into the real intricacies of some of these filings and some of these situations with these companies. They just wanted the 10 best edibles to buy kind of things. And I just wanted more. So as I was looking for more, I couldn't find it. And when I figured, well, I can't find the type of stories I want to read about the cannabis industry, I need to start doing them on my own. And that's when I started Green Market Report. Well, that's a great, great story and a great introduction to how you went about you know, learning about the industry and then really digging into it. And I know having sort of collaborated on, on some uh, stories that you really do dig into the details of, you know, what's happening with these companies and in, in industries. And, and I'm curious, you know, is that what you think makes you unique uh, as, a, as a media property? And, and what else is there that sort of makes Green Market Report uh, a go-to source? Stand out? <laughs> so sure. Um I, I absolutely think that that is our secret sauce. You know, it, it isn't really truly all that secret. It's not uh, rocket science what we're doing. But what we're doing is taking the time to dig a little deeper and also to put some of these stories into context. So I feel like what's happening, um, say, right now, is a company will put out a press release 
the media will cover just that press release and not kind of remind the reader, oh yeah, and by the way, this company did this, this, and that over the past six months, or uh, give some more background than what that press release is just telling you. And that's, I think, the big difference. Um, I, I'm kind of amazed that this happens a lot. And also, I think that some of the cannabis companies put pressure on the cannabis media to only cover them favorably. You know, they do that, oh, but we're colleagues. Right, And right. they kind of almost see the press, the cannabis press, as advocates. And I don't do advocacy reporting. I don't really do a whole lot of legislative reporting unless it's a super big deal. Uh, that's just not my niche. That's not what I'm focused on. What I'm focused on is talking about these companies and whether they're healthy or not, and maybe also highlighting some of the nonsense that might be happening with these companies. So when you've, oh, got, right. when you've got some cannabis press out there that's reluctant to say anything bad, um, that's not great for the shareholders. And to me, um, that's what's most important is protecting shareholders' um, money and their investments and maybe that's a little altruistic of me in the cynical world today but um, no. it's kind of my my journalistic calling it certainly doesn't make you a lot of money i'd probably do better if i just invested myself uh, um, well yeah but but it also <laughs> is important for the industry too deborah because for it to have uh, a true following and to really go mainstream it needs to have um a free press, if you will, to to be able to dig into it. So some of the questions I want to ask you sort of jumping around a bit is, you know, you've covered some interesting stuff in, in the time that I've known you, um, like, you know, Mass Roots as a story. And we recently saw where they just got $50,000 in federal money or lately with MedMen executives having to put up their homes as collateral. Collateral. What's your take on these? I'm, I mean, I'm sure there, there's a long list of other ones, but these are the two that came to mind as I was thinking about uh, speaking with you today. Well, you know, Ed, it's interesting because I just covered a story this week that's really kind of um, right up your alley into the way that we work together. And and, and I, know, I'm not, I know that sounds almost like a, a commercial and promotion to, to the listeners of the podcast, but this, <laughs> this is actually how organic it works between Ed and I. So, And I haven't called you on the story, but I, I probably will end up at some point. Good. So we've got these licenses um, out in on the West Coast that part of them were part of the Intercapital Urban Group. I, I see, uh, Interurban Capital Group. I always say that dyslexic. Interurban Capital Group. Right, so right, ICG. Right. ICG sold this chunk of licenses pending and operational, so not all of them are stores uh, opening uh, that are opened and working, uh, to Harvest Health and Recreation, who then flipped them within weeks to high times. So now you've got this set of licenses that have basically changed hands Ugh. twice over eight weeks. And you have not seen that the, you know, and in one case, I'm just kind of following just one of these licenses where the partner has said, I haven't agreed to the sell. Well, you can always ask the, you can always ask the high times CEO, oh wait, but which one? All right. Yeah. So um, in this case, this have a heart dispensary, which from all intents and purposes, from what I've read, customers love to have a heart dispensaries. Uh, this particular one, the 40 percent owner says, I didn't sign off on this license to be sold. It, it can't be sold. 
Wow. And and not only was it sold once, it was sold twice. And the San Francisco Cannabis Board hasn't even agreed to any of these sales. And so it starts to get really complicated from a journalistic point of view of reporting right. on this when you've got one public, well, actually one public company, one potentially public company, horse trading these licenses as if as if they were just pieces of commodity that could be horse traded when they're not. And in wow. and to make it even more complicated, this license in question that I'm speaking of was part of a social equity program. So technically this Oof. person said if if the license gets sold, I have to give up my ownership because it's no longer a social equity license. I'm the social equity component of this of this license. Wow, what a mess. Isn't uh, it I, a mess? And then, and then, like you said, then you throw in the high times, um, and and then you know we couldn't we couldn't. So many of us have have been scratching our heads on why Harvest Health and Recreation sold these licenses to High Times. They're a mess. T they're in, in just a mess right now as well. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. And and to be honest, I know our research team has been trying to track the uh the <laughs> movements because we try and say well what what company owns this or companies and, yeah. and now i think we're just sort of scratching our heads like it's really not too clear and then it almost gets into that forensic type of accounting where you need a private investigator to start figuring out who's really behind the llc's if there are llc's and that corporate ownership so it's definitely uh a messy one and it's a story that we've been uh, noodling on uh as well so I'll, I'll be excited to to read what you wrote about that um the other area I want to talk about, since we both come from the sort of publishing industry, that's where I spent most of my career, is that, you know, you're doing a lot of things right that publishers do. You do events, you do newsletters, et cetera. So one of the things I wanted to dig into was you recently held uh, an event around the psychedelic market. And I was curious, how did that go and what was that like? Because that's an area that you know, we're keeping an eye on, there aren't licenses yet, but I think we all know that there will be at some point. It's super interesting. And my event went really well. I kind of threw it together very last minute. Um, and thankfully I did because, um, as, as you know, with the COVID, we've had to basically cancel all our events and that's a huge portion of our income. But as we were looking at the calendar, we realized we needed to have an event early in 2020 because we'd had to push push some of our events out and now in hindsight thank god we did because we sold out the event was very successful mm. there was a tremendous amount of interest we were originally going to hold another one in san francisco this summer another psychedelic event but now I, I'm no, I just have no idea what the calendar is going to look like and when I can even start to plan this thing again. Right. It is super interesting. I think investor-wise, these are not as fast of an exit as maybe some of the cannabis industry was. Oh. This is not going to be fast money. I think it's going to veer more into the biotech type of calendar uh, where you end up you're going to have to have FDA trials and studies and treat it almost like a pharmacological type of product. It's not going to be like, I, I, this, of course, this is just my interpretation. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be like, you know, you rolling into a dispensary 
him picking up some psilocybin mushrooms for the weekend. <laughs> I don't foresee that <laughs> as much as I think a lot of people would like that. Really what people are into getting into this market for is to treat drug-resistant depression, to treat addiction. Um, there have been a bunch of anecdotal studies here and, and small, small group studies on the effectiveness of these products, as particularly psilocybin. When you start to get into the whole psychedelics world, oh my, it, it, uh, you go into this Pandora's box of right, yeah. totally, uh, you know, where you get into the MDMA and the ayahuasca. And I, I don't really cover much of that. I, I, that's going to get too far off my mission. Yep. No. But I, one I, of the I reasons we named Green Market Report that kind of agnostic name was so that we weren't just beholding to cannabis. We wanted, we, that was always part of our long-term vision was to be able to go into sustainable reporting if we want, go into um, other plant alternative medicine if we want. No, it makes, it makes sense. Like one of the things that I really liked that I heard last week for one of the articles that, that covered this described the whole mushroom uh, idea under the broad rubric of plant-based medicine. And I really like that because that sort of encompasses a lot, just like cannabis media. When we chose that name, we weren't doing media. We knew we were going to do data because that's where we started, but it gives us the opportunity to, hey, do podcasts, for example, or or uh, do blog posts or do publications, which we've done. They can all fit underneath that. So that uh, I, I think makes a lot of sense. So uh, it'll be interesting to see, and I'm, I'm glad... Uh, I'll be able to keep track of it through Green Market Report. It's pretty interesting, and and with mushrooms, it gets really even more, I guess, complicated because the spores themselves are not illegal. So if you wanted to grow your own psilocybin mushrooms, um, you can buy the spores online. They're not illegal. It's just when they apparently then grow into the plant that they become illegal. So. Uh. There is this craziness, um, and I, I do believe that they will start to, when they start to get it figured out, I think, yeah, they're going to start to really want some structure around people growing this product. And, yeah, I could see you having mushroom facilities or psilocybin mushroom facilities that need to be licensed and monitored. Yeah, understood. Well, it sounds like the the psychedelic world is still, you know, kind of in its infancy. But I'm, you know, happy and relieved to know that people like you, Deborah, are you know spending the time to investigate this and present this information and to us. Um, now, I wanted to kind of go back to uh, the virtual events topic. You know, Ed mentioned the the event that you guys did earlier this year. But you know, moving forward into the the future, especially with COVID nineteen. Um, a lot of media companies are going to virtual events or hosting virtual events. Do you think that this will be a sustainable events model? I don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> having said that, I'm actually partnering with a couple of companies that are doing some online events in June. I just... Um, I, Listen, this is my gut. I, I'm so busy. I don't have time to, personally, I don't have time to jump into these podcasts. The few that I have jumped into, I've not found them 
to be that beneficial. I haven't really gotten anything out of them. Um, so then I, I click off because I've got to get back to work. So I just don't know how effective these virtual events are. I think people are doing them because, to your point, they can't do the in-person events. They want to be out there. They want to keep their name up top. They want to be at the um, be visible. And so that's why they're doing all this. And maybe for people that aren't as busy as I am, they do have the time to, to sit on these things all day or jump in and out. I, I just, <laughs> I don't, the ones that I've seen that have been saying that they were charging for entrance into these virtual events, a day or two before the actual event, all of a sudden I get an email saying that it's free now. <laughs> and the one, a couple of them I've jumped into that did show how many people were on the event there weren't that many people and so to me there are a lot of work to to organize and to set up and I just don't see where it's really paying off one financially and two even with your audience hmm. I could be wrong and I but I know that there are a lot of I I can imagine if these things are not successful we're never going to hear about them no one's <laughs> going to come out and say these virtual events suck. I've spent hours setting it up. Ten people jumped in. I got no money out of it. It burned up so much time on my calendar. I'm not doing it anymore. I don't think anybody's going to be honest and say that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think they're all going to go, yeah, virtual events, they've been great. Wow, yeah. we made so much money, and we had 300 people tune in. Yeah. Well, I think it's going to be part on uh, the responsibility of the actual vendors themselves that are signing up to do this to, you know, kind of bring some awareness to these events. Uh, but I also do, you know, I agree it's a little too early to tell whether or not these will be successful. But I, I do think that, you know, things like complimentary access to the first few virtual trade shows, you know, would go a lot farther than initially charging, you know, just trying to, to make their, their return. Um, but so kind of given your, your perspective here and uh, your thoughts on the virtual events, how do you feel about the directories of industry thought leaders? Um, you know, what, what has kind of been the reception uh, to things like that? And which ones have you done? And do you have anything in the queue? Lots of questions. <laughs> um, define the directories of thought leaders. So we're talking more so like, um, you know, lists. We're talking uh, uh. more so, yeah, you know, just kind of more so um, pulling together industry panels and, and things like that. I, You know, I actually, it's funny because we were going to do, um, Green Market Report was going to do a kind of a small, you know, here I just blasted all this virtual stuff, but kind of more like a small meeting of the minds of some media people, some PR people but it was not it was not like it was something we were going to charge for or op do big open invitations it was more of a confab of people saying here's what I'm seeing on the advertising side here's what I'm seeing on the PR side here's what I'm seeing on the news side because we're all kind of tied together in this in this circle and having uh, more of a conversation versus an actual event and I think that that, to me, is, is better in the sense that, and it may be because I'm news, I'm already out there, I'm, I, don't, I don't need to put my face in front of everybody because it's already, you know, 
in front of them as, as it is every day. Well, uh, Deborah, I was kind of curious, though, about like the report that you did on the top 11 cannabis law firms, like the, sort of that directory publishing model of you know, finding some notable firms in important verticals. You know, so what was the reception to that one? And do you have other ones in the queue or are those ones you're talking about with PR and, and other kind of service verticals? So those those types of things, you know, I have a love-hate with those articles, <laughs> um, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Uh, those articles, um, I do them because they, they attract interest, they attract page views, uh, people retweet them, they they send them back out on social media. So for me, doing those types of articles is a way to engage my audience and to bring people back and get a dialogue about these companies that get listed. And whether it's the it's women or PR firms or community, I do these for a specific purpose, which is to have another way to engage my audience without it being a news hook for them to right. read. Right. And it also shows an opinion too. like, you know, choices have to be made. Some people are on the list and some people are not. And, you know, that always uh, generates interest. Yeah. My inbox gets every time those go up, then my inbox gets pounded with people saying, what about me? Why wasn't I on the list? And um, and their feelings get hurt. And those are all uh, advertising leads and, and sponsorship leads, hopefully, for your next uh, events, too. <laughs> well, you know, and then I, I honestly, I tell some of the people that it's like, well, Mr. So-and-so, every time I call you, you tell me no comments. So, yeah, I didn't put you in the best communicator list because literally every single email from you about your company is no comment. So how do I put you in the best communicator list when you only tell me no comment? Brilliant. Like, come on, dude. Like, what is wrong with you? And uh, <laughs> and then, but, it, but it's interesting that you brought out the legal list in the directory because I, I worked on that with Sean Hawking and uh, at the Cannabis Law Blog. And he, because I don't know that many lawyers, I don't, thankfully, and um, he helped me come up with that list. And then as a result of that, he's decided that he's going to do a directory for lawyers in the cannabis industry and that will be a revenue producer for him. And then if I'm able to make a referral for a lawyer firm that signs up for this directory for the upgraded pa package, I guess, um, I'll get some revenue out of that. So it becomes like a kind of a nice way to take this thing that, that we kind of can't stand doing in a way but it's important to do and now turn it into a bit of a revenue producer. Not not a big revenue producer, but it's something that helps keep the lights on. Understood, understood. Well, so Deborah, looking forward to the future here, do we have does Green Market Report have any new product launches or new initiatives that we should be looking forward to? We're super excited because we kind of because we had this time, um, where things have kind of hit the pause button. Um, we do have a, a new website we're going to be launching in about four to five weeks. We've been able to put our, our tech officer back on focusing on this product. Um, he's, you know, doesn't work for us full time, and he was, he's been crazy busy over the last year. We had this product that's called Candex, and we expect to launch it in about four to five weeks. It's a stock website. It is just cannabis stocks, and each company will have a profile. We're not 
it, it's not like a directory in the sense that the companies pay for an upgraded profile. That does not happen. But what will have happen is the users can subscribe to an upgraded package. Right now, what we're going to roll out is just the free site. So people can see it, play with it, get, you know, get familiar with it. And then we'll introduce the subscriber model um, a few months later down the road. And it's super cool looking. Um, we're going to have news feeds from Business Wire. We're going to have the stories from Green Market Report. Each of these companies, you can pop up their profile and see all kinds of s financial statistics, have a chart uh, for their price action. Uh, we're going to have a social function within this website so that traders can set up a, a profile. And then they can say, oh, I bought Cronus Group this week, or oh, I sold Massroots this week. This is great stock. This is a bad stock. And then they can talk amongst each other. Because right now that's happening, but in all these different channels. So you've got investor groups on Facebook, or you've got direct uh, mail groups on Twitter. And so there's a lot of stock jocks talking about cannabis stocks, but in all these very d fractured places. So It'll be better than the Yahoo Finance message boards back from the dot-com era, right? It will be, you know what, Ed? It will be not unlike that. Now, I don't know whether we can keep people from pumping and dumping. I think that that's going to be something we just – usually what happens in that situation is the social forums take care of themselves and bust people for that. And yeah, you get a beat down. You get a beat down if you start uh, you leading do. people astray. You do. You get publicly shamed. So I, I'm real excited about it. I think that for me personally in this time of challenge to be able to come out in the middle of this and say, oh, hey, we have a new product instead of, you know, sl slinking through the market with my tail between my legs or, you know, flogging myself over how bad things are. Um, instead, we're coming at this from a position of strength and saying, wow, well, while we had this downtime, hey, we created a new product. <laughs> Excellent. Congrats. I love it. That's uh, kind of how the Canacurio podcast came to be as well. You know, in the beginning of the, the year, we had the idea to give some uh, new shed some new light on the, the Canacurio blogs that Ed has been doing. And, uh, you know, since this whole quarantine has happened, you know, we've recorded so many podcasts and, you know, it really is a, a great feeling to come out of here out of quarantine feeling positive and productive. So kudos to you, Deborah, and the Green Market team. Thank you. I You know, the cannabis media has seen a, a lot of contraction over the last six months. We've seen some of our competitors go out of business and we have managed to stay strong, stay active. We have no debt. We've been bootstrapped and we're small, but we're growing. We just signed with Quote Media. So you'll start to see our stories showing up with uh, whoever is doing the news, um, their news with the Quote Media feed. So our stories are mostly on publicly traded stocks. So the companies, again, that, that sign up for that, our stories will start to appear alongside some of the other bigger media, whether it's Business Insider or Benzinga. So I'm excited about that, and that should be underway. Well, we just got, we just got that all installed. So hopefully those stories will start showing up in the feeds next week. 
I love it. Well, we'll definitely be on the lookout for your up for these upcoming feeds. And, you know, I just want to say thank you so much, Deborah, for joining us on today's podcast. I, I learned a tremendous amount, uh, especially to, you know, kind of your insights on the psilocybin uh, community here and kind of uh, the equation to uh, the, the bio uh, bio uh, track here in terms of a timeline, I think, you know, is really informative. And, you know, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I miss seeing Ed in the conference world. So one day soon, we'll we'll be able to hang out at one of these uh, conference floor happy hours again. I know. In the future. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, thanks so much, Deborah. Thank you. So, Ed, what do we have to look forward to from the Data Vault? So, what we're looking at now are California micro business licenses. So. I think as most people know, they were created as a way to encourage craft cannabis and so that small businesses can engage in this industry and they don't get uh, overrun by sort of the, the Starbucks or the big uh, alcohol coming into the space. So in California, a licensee has to engage in at least three activities. It could be retail, delivery, cultivation, distribution, uh, transport, or manufacturing. So what the team did is we took a look at all 270 or so licenses issued so far, and we dug into the license permissions to see what did people choose to do. And what kind of surprised us was distributor was the top choice of those uh, six choices. 97% of the people with a micro business chose that, and then 91% chose to be a manufacturer. You had to go all the way down to the fourth spot to actually find retail. That was only ch chosen by about 35%, which we think is kind of interesting. So we're going to dig into that a bit more and uh, do a can of curio uh, blog post coming up on that just to sort of you know show how many license or how many activities people chose to do and which ones they uh, went ahead and uh, made a part of their business. I'm very curious to hear the results here, Ed. Thanks so much. As always, thank you everyone for joining us on today's podcast. We're your host, Amanda Guerrero and Ed Keating. Stay tuned for more updates from the Data Vault.